2: Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I am your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. It is April 29th. We are recording this on Thursday morning. We're going to talk about what's going on in Colorado, how the Giants are actually making it interesting. If you're worried about Francisco Lindor... And Mike Trout having his best ever month, which wouldn't be a thing you think could possibly happen. Matt, I don't know what baseball you were watching last night. There were some interesting games and there were some blowouts, but I wanted to know if you caught any of the uh, Braves Cubs game, because I think that was one of my favorite moments of the year. It was a blowout, and then they brought in Anthony Rizzo to pitch. And as I was reading this morning, I didn't know this at the time, um, David Ross actually was going to bring in Matt Duffy, an infielder, to pitch. But Freeman, but Rizzo asked if he could pitch because Freddie Freeman was up third and he wanted to pitch to Freeman and like their friends. You probably saw the highlight from earlier this year where Rizzo was chasing down Freeman in a rundown and he's yelling like, Freddie, Frederick, and then Rizzo pitches to Freeman and he strikes him out. And they're both just like smiling and laughing and giggling. And it was like the most charming moment of the year to me. Like it was a terrible game. We have too many position players pitching. But that moment, it I was like cackling. It made me happy to watch. Did you see it at all?
1: I, I wasn't watching live. I have subsequently seen the highlights. I do think it was like a, to your point... <laughs> One of the best arguments we've seen of like, hey, maybe we do want position players pitching sometimes because, <laughs> right. I mean, although under the even under the new rules that are that were paused for this year, um the pitch the limit on position players pitching, Rizzo could have pitched last night because it it says I think it's a lead of seven runs or more, so I think it was ten nothing at the time, like yeah, so 10-0. he he could have pitched. Um Yes, it was fantastic, and I think that you know Freddie Freeman has emerged as he just has such like a, a, a superstar athlete who has such a good like sense of humor and willingness to just kind of laugh at himself is uh really uh endearing and he's really shown that um with both the incidents uh, not incidents uh you know moments you mentioned uh with uh, the rundown in last night and he was just like game, I saw his quote he was just like you know those are I, I hate he was like I hate facing position players pitching um because like you know it's so different the rhythm of it is so different and um it was it was fantastic
2: I feel like first basemen don't always get like the star power they used to because they're not as defensively valued as other positions, and it's not hard to find guys to hit home runs anymore. But he's like he's a legitimate superstar. You know, won the MVP last year. He's gonna have, I guess, a Hall of Fame argument someday, and um, at some point soon, not right now, we'll have to talk about the fact he's free agent at the end of the year because uh, that's gonna be a thing.
1: <laughs> I think that he's one guy actually where if he does care about the Hall of Fame, um, sticking with the Braves. You know, I don't know what the finances are gonna look like. I think he's one of those guys though where like that could actually help his his candidacy. If he becomes like, you know, has a, a good second act to his career and stays with the same team. I think that like when it comes to like the narrative of Hall of Fame cases, his would be boosted significantly if he stayed with the Braves for, you know, his entire or like, you know, ninety-five percent of his career.
2: Yeah, I agree with you on that. All right, let's get to our opening topic here. I know this is a couple days old now, but we didn't get a chance to talk about it. And if you know anything about this show, we are deeply fascinated with everything about the Colorado Rockies. Earlier this week, they parted ways with general manager Jeff Breidich, and it was positioned as a mutual parting of the ways. I think we all know what that means. Um, I guess we have to figure out going forward if we can still say they've never fired a general manager, because technically they haven't, but they have. They definitely did. That's what happened here. And I don't think anyone was surprised that, you know, he wasn't going to be the one to to rebuild them or move them forward or whatever. But what was very surprising to me was the timing, right? Like he traded Nolan Arenado partially due to a, a mess of his own making. And then he's out three weeks into the season. And it's not like the Rockies are any better or worse than expected so far this year. Everybody expected them to be at the bottom of the standings and that's where they are. So I, I haven't seen a good explanation. and Maybe maybe you have, Matt. What changed? Like, did did the ownership? Did Dick Montfort change his mind and say, "Okay, this isn't the guy"? Like, why now? Why why not two years ago? Why not six months from now?
1: It's weird um, for the reason you mentioned. Like, you don't. obviously, the ownership was involved in the Arenado contract to begin with, and also involved in the trade that got made. That said, it's it's still weird to to uh, you know allow Brightech to make that trade. And then, which is a, a franchise-altering uh, m- uh, transaction, and then, uh, like you know, push him out the door a couple months later. Um, there's a there's a huge disconnect there. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying they would have like done a lot better if it was someone else making that trade, but it's still just kind of weird to to make that trade and then be like, oh yeah, bye. We're now we're now we're 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 letting you go, and we're gonna have an interim for the rest of the year, and then hire someone new in the offseason because also like what to do with Trevor story is also maybe not a franchise altering decision, but like there's a somewhat of a wide range of what they could potentially get for him via trade this summer because he's a free agent this year. And I think it's very likely that he will be in demand as a trade candidate. And I think you'd want someone who's going to be part of the future of your organization, you know, shaping that trade.
2: Yeah, that's the thing. So what they did was they promoted, um, their chief operating officer, Greg Fiesel, who I, I will honestly say I knew nothing about, although when I looked him up, he apparently played some, line, some like offensive tackle for the Packers in the 80s, which is like a really interesting career path. And I assume he's an enormous man. But again, I know nothing about him. So he's the business guy. He has been promoted to club president, which is a role they haven't had filled in, uh, in over a decade since the uh, un- untimely passing of Kelly McGregor in 2010. Now, reportedly, they're going to name an interim GM sometime this week. And here's what was notable to me. So I I was reading an article, I can't remember where, the Denver Post or wherever, and they mentioned three internal candidates who might be the assistant uh, interim GM. Okay, Um, their current assistant GMs, Zach Rosenthal and John Wheel, or Bill Schmidt, who has run their scouting operations. And what stood out to me about those three names is that I had never heard of any of them before. Right? Like they they've been so low profile, like. I think I could name some assistant GMs for like a bunch of teams, right? Like, okay. I know Josh Burns with the Dodgers and Billy Owens with the A's and so on. And probably some other ones where if you'd mentioned them to me, I'd be like, oh yeah, I know this person. I had never heard of any of these three, like at all. That doesn't mean they're good or bad. It's just like such a low profile thing. Cause they've always had, you know, Breidich and, and Dan O'Dowd have been the guy for like, what the last 20 something years. So it's like now one of them will have to make these decisions and then what do you do next? Like, I'm trying to think about what the right person to run the Rockies should be. And, you know, if if you could get, say, like Theo Epstein to come do the job, like, great. I don't think you can, but like, hypothetically. Um, but I was trying to think about this. When Theo came in for the Red Sox in 2003, and I'm using him as like an archetype, not specifically about him. He was like, you know, one of the the weird, interesting new nerds who will never make it work, right? It was like Bean was there and D Podesta. And other than Dave Dombrowski, everybody operates like that. Like to have a theotype is not new and weird. And I'm trying to figure out like this is a very unique situation. Nobody knows how to win at altitude. You've got a really tough division out there. Um, You've got the 27th ranked farm system. So it's like, yes, you could bring in the next Mike Hazen or Theo or David Stearns or whatever and and try to play catch up. But should they zag where everybody else is zigging? And I'm not even sure I know what that means. I guess what I'm thinking of is like, who's the Kyle Bode of GMs, right? Like, how fast did we go from you're not allowed to throw weighted balls and you can't go to drive line to, oh, yeah, Kyle Bode runs all Cincinnati's pitching operations now, right? Like, I think that's what they need. Someone who's going to think super weird and super differently, because I, I don't know doing it the same way as everybody else is going to work there.
1: Totally. I mean, the the one thing that I always think about with the Rockies, and I'm not saying I'm like, you know, reinventing the wheel here, but one thing I'm not sure they've ever really tried um, is like going all in on uh, contact hitters um, because the one thing court actually plays up as much as anything is base hits. And also just the idea that like a, a lot of those players aren't necessarily as valued these days. Um, that there might be like you know guys like I don't know DJ LeMahieu, um, but more of them <laughs> that would never work. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I guess you know it's it's one of those things that's easier said than done. But like I'm, it's the kind of thing I, I'm I'm curious about. Of like, okay, if you tried to stack your lineup with this, um, maybe you could find some sort of you know advantage because again, these players are not necessarily like hugely valued on you know on the open market. The other thing, I mean, what's because I mean, the issue that they'll always face right though is the, is the home road thing. You know, it's, it's the Rockies have always won at home. It's adjusting to playing on the road. That's the problem. And man, if you look at it this year, it's as bad as ever. They are one and eight on the road. <laughs> They've scored 21 runs and allowed 53. Um, that's like the problem. It's that they cannot, they, they just like can't, they actually have a winning record at home this year. They're eight and seven, um, but they're one and eight on the road and nine and 15 overall. And in last place, and that's been the stories of the Rockies, you know, since inception. Like they actually have a, a a winning record as a franchise at home, and have been well below 500 on the road year in and year out.
2: It's been well documented that playing at home as a Rocky hurts you on the road, and I guess I guess we're about to get into a giant chicken and the egg thing because while everything you said is true, they've played only three series on the road, right? Once in LA and twice in San Francisco. And are those teams good because they're good? Or are they good because they keep playing the Rockies, right? (laughs) Like there's a little bit of that. But going back to what you said, I'm really glad you mentioned the contact hitter thing. If I was asked, like, what what are the two things that you would do um, to fix this? I guess like the first thing I would do would be to build up the organization and, and, you know, restaff the analytics team and build a, a pitching lab and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of the roster, the two things I would do, number one is I would get an absolutely top of the line elite defensive center fielder right like we've been saying this for years five years ago i was like oh get billy hamilton you know he's not that guy anymore get lorenzo Kane. that's not him anymore right but as you mentioned the issue with cores is not home runs it's that the outfield is so big that everything falls for singles doubles triples so they've never really had i mean i guess maybe juan pierre was this guy back in the day but they've never really had this like truly elite defensive center fielder so that's what i would do and then yeah what you said because contact is more valuable at cores than anywhere else. And since the issue on the road is, you know, they strike out a lot because they're not used to the different way the ball moves, if you have an elite contact guy, maybe that doesn't hurt as much. Like I don't think you want eight Nick Madrigals because he has like zero power. But like, I'd like to see Nick Madrigal playing in course field. He did 380. I'm literally staring at Nick Madrigal's player
1: page right now as you say that. He's like the perfect example of a guy who I'd find like way more interesting on the Rockies and his current team, as well as, you know, one of my favorite players, Luis Ryan's.
2: Um, right. Yeah. Nick Madrigal's line, if he played at Coors, would be 380, 390, 400. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But anyway, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see. And I think they are the hardest part for whomever comes in. I think it's going to be convincing uh, the higher ups that this is not a quick fix. This is not a next year or two years. This is like, we need to, figure this out and almost start over. Uh, probably need to trade Herman Marquez. They'll trade John Gray because he's going to be a free agent. I don't think they'll trade Freeland just because his value is probably not that high after his last couple years. And since he's a Colorado guy, they probably like having him around. But yeah, man, we, we talk about the Rockies so much, and I don't feel like that's going to change anytime soon because while they're not good, they are endlessly fascinating. And oh, by the way, all-star game is going to be in Colorado. It's going to be fun. We're going to take a quick break and we will come back with our three better minimum.
0: Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually we just brush it off or blame ourselves saying things like I lost my mojo or we avoid it altogether with excuses like I had a long day at work or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com slash MLB. GetRoman.com slash MLB.
2: We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Hey, have you noticed the Giants are tied with the Dodgers and the Red Sox for the best record in baseball? 16-9. It is fair to point out, as we just mentioned, they are 5-1 against the Rockies and 11-8 and against everyone else. But the Dodgers are 6-1 against the Rockies and 10-8 and against everyone else. I would like to pat myself on the back a little bit because while the Giants have not been very good for the last several years, I spent a decent amount of the winter saying this team is super interesting and I really like the foundation they're laying down and it might not show up in the standings, um, but they're doing the, they're doing it right. Like Farhan and crew have really made some meaningful improvements. I will say this though. Um, I did not expect this great start to be fueled by Buster Posey and Evan Longoria. Buster Posey hasn't had a good year in like three years. He didn't play last year. Um, He's hitting 351 and slugging 667. Evan Longoria, who I'm pretty sure I forgot was still playing, is hitting 311 and slugging 590. He's third best in hard hit rate behind Giancarlo Stanton and Byron Buxton. I mean, when you look at the offense for this team the last couple of years, it's mostly been you know, guys they have found uh, like Mike Yastremski, right? Or Alex Dickerson or, or Donovan Solano. Most of those guys aren't doing much or are injured. And it's those two guys and Brandon Bell who have been crushing the ball. It's like, we're all 2015 up in here. That has been stunning to me. Um, but overall, the offense has just been okay. It's been about Uh, You know, just below average in runs per game. And I thought this was interesting. Grant Brisby at The Athletic wrote this. Um, They're seeing 4.12 pitches per plate appearance. That is the highest of any team on record, which goes back to 1988. I do want to talk about the pitching uh, in a second, but the Giants offense, Matt, like, were you as high on them as I was, Um, but not in this way? I guess that's the the right way to say it.
1: I was, I mean, I'll admit I was just kind of eh, on the Giants coming into the season just because I was like, their roster is kind of old. They're just kind of boring. I think some of it's a little aesthetic, like they're not the team I'm ever going to be flipping through, you know, MLB.TV and be like, which game am I want to put on? Like the Giants are just not, they're low on that list of teams. I'm going to be like, Ooh, let me go check out the Giants game. Right. So um, I think maybe some of that is, 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 is baked into my lack of enthusiasm for them coming into the season. I mean, I had, I, I talked a little bit about Longoria on last week's podcast. It's fun to see him hitting the ball, although he's been banged up a little bit. Posey as well. Um, I'm still kind of skeptical, but it's interesting. And the pitching, I'm fascinated by the pitching. And that's actually where they are kind of interesting because it's a, a bunch of mid career guys who have looked, some of whom have had like moments of excellence in their career, like Alex Wood and Kevin Gaussman. And they're like, been excellent thus far this year
2: it's actually like a bunch of former cincinnati reds if you think about it right like cueto was a red alex wood was a red anthony scafani was a red kevin Gaussman was a red uh Kirk casali their backup catcher was a red i feel like i'm forgetting someone i think matt whistler was a red um yeah but you're right the pitching's been great they have the best rotation era in baseball at 220 they have the second best overall era to san diego at 293 And the guy that sticks out to me, well, I guess there's two guys. The first is is Gausman, who um, I heard a lot of people being shocked that they gave him the qualifying offer last year. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He was great. He was great in a meaningfully different way. Like he says, splitter's been great. It's a one-year deal. Like if he's great, great. If you want to trade him, great. Like there's no problem with that. Um, Aaron Sanchez is a really interesting case. So he was, you know, Toronto spent years trying to get him and his like power sinker uh, to be the starting pitcher. And he couldn't miss bats. And he couldn't stay healthy, and it just really never worked. And then they traded him to Houston, and everybody on earth, myself included, was like, um, he throws a pretty good curveball. They're going to make him throw the curveball more, and not the four-seamer. And that first game, what did he do? Like a no-hitter into the sixth inning or something like that? And we were all like, ah, the Astros. Uh, and then it did work. Then he got hurt. He hurt his shoulder. And if you look at him this year, you would be terrified, because he usually throws that sinker like 93, 94, 95. You know how hard he's throwing it now? 89.9 miles an hour, which is like the biggest possible red flag. Um, but for the first time, his curveball this is his primary pitch. And that's kind of what they're doing, right? Like uh, Alex Wood invented a slider last year, and he's throwing that almost as a primary pitch at the Scalfani too. You know, we've talked a lot about how there are fewer fastballs and they are thrown faster and everybody's using their breaking pitches. I don't, trust all of this. Like, I don't think Alex Wood is a 150 ERA pitcher. I don't think Di Scalfani is. I don't think Sanchez is a 222 ERA guy, but I'm kind of curious to see what they do with this, because I don't think either one of us believe they're going to seriously challenge the Dodgers in the, in the West. And as I look at this list of starters, I think, uh, five of the six starters are free agents at the end of the year, right? Like Gaussman, I think Di Scalfani, Sanchez, Cueto, would I have to double check that, but it's something along those lines like they could potentially blow up the entire trade deadline with their rotation if they chose to do so, uh, in July,
1: but I guess. But like the way every, all the other, like, quote unquote contenders in the National League have gotten off to kind of mediocre starts, like they might as well, you know, at very least consider themselves um, a wild card contender. And I want actually one other picture I wanted to talk about briefly before we move on, and you mentioned is and I can never say his name right. Des- Desclafani is that Anthony
2: Desclafani?
1: Desclafani. You,
2: you need to have he's- a vowel at the end of your name, like I do. You need to have those those good Italian verbs here.
1: <laughs> Desclafani. He's fascinating to me because I was like I was like staring at his his baseball savant page today, trying to like figure out like what he's doing it and why he's doing it because he's like he's kind of he's legitimately like a five pitch guy, which you don't really see that often anymore. But like he basically uses his fastballs very differently. The four-seamer he throws almost exclusively to lefties and the sinker much more to righties. And if you look at like the heat map, he, it's very consistently pounding that sinker in on the hands of righties um, and the four-seamer up in the zone against lefties. And he's had a lot of success. And it's just kind of cool to see someone like legitimately throwing five pitches because you don't really get that, that much anymore. Um, so it's... It's a little bit of a little bit of a it's it's not he's not a junk baller per se, but there's definitely a a wide repertoire
2: there. Yeah, they're a fun team. I I understand what you're saying aesthetically, but I do think we all spend so much time talking about Dodgers Padres in the West, um, understandably. But I don't know. Dodgers Giants, I think, will be pretty fun. And that's just partially because of the, the shared history they have here. Item number two. Are you worried about Francisco Lindor? The Mets right now have the worst offense in baseball just in terms of runs per game they've scored three runs per game that is last I assume you saw what happened last night where Jacob deGrom lost again he lost a one nothing game He's has two earned runs five total runs that's what it is in five games and he is two and two it is just ridiculous how often this keeps happening and I think you know there's a lot of issues with the Mets right now but part of it is that Lindor has not been that great this year He's hitting 203, 317 on base and a 261 slugging percentage. And he hasn't been the same for like the last two years now. Like if you go back over his last 1000 plate appearances, which is almost exactly to the start of 2019, about 10% above average, which is good, right? It's good for a elite defensive shortstop, which he is, but it's not, it's not the guy that you thought you saw in 2017 and, and 2018 when he was like 30% above average. Last year was just league average. This year has been poor and the numbers um behind them are kind of interesting. He has a career low strikeout rate and a career high walk rate, which you might think, oh, those are good things. He's also got a career low like swing swing rate and zone swing rate, which I think sort of means he's being too passive maybe and um you know, we like to talk about barrels here, the perfect combination of exit velocity and launch angle and in 2018, he was very good at this. He was in the 71st percentile, and this year he's in the 6th percentile. So I don't think this is the conversation any Mets fan wanted to have about him a month after he signed that contract, but it has not been a good month here.
1: No, it has not. Um, I think it's somewhat been masked by the fact that none of the Mets, quote unquote, good hitters are hitting. Um, so it's uh, it's it's not just him and the, the team itself, whereas in the past years, they would only not score when DeGrom was pitching. Now they've decided to, um, you know, maybe not do- score. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't want to just – They're like, well, we, we don't want to single out DeGrom anymore, so we're just not going to score for any pitcher. Um, it's – yeah, he – the more – like watching Lindor gives me concern. The more I look into it, maybe a little less worried. I think it's more of a question of, you know, is that 2018 season, I think was really his like, you know, quote-unquote career year, is that is that is that ever going to happen again? You know, I think that's more the question is like, can he can he repeat that, or is it like should we? Do we need to kind of you know lower our expectations, which is obviously not really what you want to hear after you know if you're a team that signed him to a um, you know a, t- a ten year deal? Um, but I think that the encouraging thing is that his hard hit rate is the same as basically ever, um, and as you noted, his uh, he's not striking down and his walk rate is slightly up. He's really just hitting the ball on ground a ton. Um, and it feels like, okay, that seems like an adjustment maybe that he's like, he's hitting the ball hard, just hitting in the ground a lot. You know, And la- even last year, which was, you know, a lot of people wanted to kind of throw it out because the 60 game season, you want to, or at least take up a big grain of salt. His expected weight on base last year was actually higher than the year before it was in than, than 2019, which I guess is kind of encouraging. But the real thing is, if you look at, you know, his expected weight on base throughout his career, the 373 he had in 2018 really actually stands out. So the question is like, what's the real Lindor? Can he get back to 340, 350? Is it more 330? Like, you know, and if you combine, you know, slightly above league average hitter with elite speed and, or should it maybe elite base running and elite defense, that's an excellent player. The question is if he's a, you know, a below average hitter, then it's a different conversation.
2: Did you realize the two outfielders they brought in, the veterans for defensive quality, uh, Kevin Pillar and Albert Almora, 35 plate appearances. They have four hits and two walks, which is not great because um, their best hitter this year has been J.D. Davis. He's actually been really good, except his defense has been really poor. It's I don't know. Is this just like the same thing they've had for, for four years now where they've got a, a a lot of really good players who just don't fit well together?
1: Uh, I mean that's true for sure. There's no question. That was my concern with this team coming in. The roster is still some some square pegs because it's like oh you know the Mets could really use a DH. Sure, like they could use a DH. It'd be great if they could DH um, Dom Smith. But then you're still playing J.D. Davis at third base. <laughs> like they basically have, they're basically playing two DHs um, every game. I mean the one encouraging thing I guess looking up and down the lineup is that you know I'm looking if you look at their expected weight on weighted on base versus weighted on base. Basically, every guy in the lineup has like a huge disparity, um, suggesting they're hitting the and, and like in the in the, the, the wrong way. Where like you know, Dom Smith has an expected weight on base of three ninety one. His actual weight on base is two thirty nine. Um, and uh, Jeff McNeil has a has not quite as big of a gap, but an extremely large gap as well. Michael Conforto has a large gap. Francisco Lindor also has a very large gap. So, um, granted, his expected on, expected weight on base is three thirteen, which is Still not good, but it's a lot better than 266, which is his actual weighted on base. So it's they've been a tough watch this year. Um, you have to think that it will get better. I think with a guy like Lindor, the question is, you know, what is the what's the the ceiling?
2: Yeah, the good news is the pitching has been very good outside of David Peterson, who hasn't been that great. But, uh, you know, DeGrom's been phenomenal, of course. Um, Stroman's been really good. Talon Walker's been been walking too many guys, but he's not allowed a single home run, so that's good. And the bullpen's been, like, surprisingly good. You know, Edwin Diaz has been bringing it. Miguel Castro is, like, a lot of fun to watch. I don't think people give him enough credit. So, you know, there's a lot to like here, but you need the guy you just gave 340-whatever million dollars to crush the ball. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is one of the very few players who makes more money than Francisco Indoor... Mike Trout is having his best ever month. How is it possible there was more in there? So the Angels are off tonight on Thursday night. They play in Seattle tomorrow. So that'll be their final game of April. Mike Trout currently is hitting, and these are real numbers, 420, 524, 783. That is an OPS of 1306. If you were to look at, let's say, weighted runs created plus, his 262 is the best by a lot. Second best is Jermaine Mercedes and then Vlad Guerrero uh, at 226 and 218 respectively. And if you were to look at every single month of Trout's career, at least the ones where he's had at least 50 plate appearances, this is his best month. How? It's one of the 20 best Aprils in the history of the game. There it should not be possible for him to improve. <laughs> like it's I don't I don't know. I don't think it's right to say we underrate him because we consistently say he's the greatest player of all time. But are we like moving on to Tatis and Soto and Acuna and Vladdy too quickly? Are we forgetting the one true God plays in Anaheim?
1: <laughs> it certainly feels that way. Like I think it almost – like my, Mike Trout certainly doesn't uh, exude this kind of personality. But it feels like he almost heard people saying like, oh, is this the year like Juan Soto passes Mike Trout as best player in baseball? And he was <laughs> right. like, no, I, I'm, I'm having none of this. Um, it is It is wild. Um, to see what he's doing. Um, he's he's barreling more than 20% of batted balls, that, which is like an, an insane number. Of course, you know, we're talking a month. But with Mike Trout, it sort of feels like, oh, he could sustain this um, or something, you know, close to this for an entire season. I, I really, I mean, the, the biggest issue with Trout in the past years is there's been a couple of times where it looked like he was having like a career year even by Trout standards and he got banged up and missed, you know, went on the IL and missed anywhere from like 15 to 30 games. Like, I want to see this 150 games of Mike Trout this year just to see where we land.
2: Yeah, it, it's absolutely wild. And, you know, I went and I wrote about it and there's there's only so much you can take from one month of like play discipline numbers. So I don't want to like go too nuts about it. But uh, the, the two takeaways I found where he's actually striking out more than ever, which maybe is counterintuitive. And he is he's not going opposite field like at all. He's being shifted more. And he's going opposite field less, which basically says to me, "I see your shift, and I do not care. I will destroy baseballs through you, over you, past you, um, whatever you do." He also has a, a batting average on balls in play of like five fifty. <laughs> so, like, I don't want to I don't want to say this is sustainable. Um, and the last thing I want to point out is we're, we're noting this because it's. It's nicely boxed into a month, right? Like I said, it's one of the 20 best Aprils in history. It's his best ever April. He's actually done this before. If you look at similar in-season stretches from like, I don't have it in front of me, randomly, let's say like, you know, May 14th to June 13th of 2015 or whatever, right? Like he's done these things before. Um, I don't know. I just, I don't feel like we can talk enough about him. And when he outdoes even himself, It is borderline uh, obscene. He's the most interesting player there. I know Shohei Otani exists. I'm not diminishing that. Mike Trout season, always. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back uh, with our rants and players to watch.
3: This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com.
2: We are back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Matt and I each like to pick a maybe under-noticed player uh, each week to talk about. We just talked about Francisco Lindor and Mike Trout. We're going to go in the exact opposite direction. My guy is Garrett Whitlock. Really? Do you know who Garrett Whitlock is? I'm I'm asking, I know Matt, you do. I'm asking the listeners to think about it for a second. Do you know what team Garrett Whitlock plays on? I'm going to say 90% of you don't. He is a 24-year-old relief pitcher, of the Boston Red Sox. He was actually undrafted out of high school and then drafted in the 18th round of 2017 by the Yankees out of the University of Alabama, Birmingham. And then he was a rule five pick to the Red Sox this year. Why am I talking about this man? Well, rule five picks generally don't have high ceilings. They generally get stashed on the roster uh, for the entire year until they can be sent down the next year. Well, he's thrown in six games, 13 and a third innings, 18 strikeouts and two walks. That's a 38% K rate. He has thrown his changeup 65 times and he's allowed zero hits. And not only that, when I tweeted about him this morning, about 10 minutes later, his wife followed me. So clearly there's a whole Garrett Whitlock fan club out there. He is um, he's being used as like a multi inning guy, right? Like he's throwing like, you know, two innings, two and a third innings, um, giving up zero home runs again, 18 strikeouts and two walks. And he's usually taking like three or four days off in between because he had Tommy John surgery in the minors in July of 19. So he hasn't really pitched competitively in a while. And he's like, I don't want to diminish him in his skill because the changeup seems really good and he pounds the zone with strikes his sinker. But when I think about like the increasing strikeout rate in baseball and how it's not about launch angle or the shifts or the hitters, it's about how pitchers are insanely good. I think about the rule five guy who was an 18th round pick four years ago, who has 18 strikeouts and two walks in his first six major league games, Garrett Whitlock. Now, you know something about Garrett Whitlock.
1: Um. The player I want to be talking, I, I think we should be talking more about, is Brewers catcher Omar Narvaez. I will admit that. Um, so on MLB.com, we did, uh, we uh, unveiled our MVP watch today, um, where we asked our reporters and editors to vote on who they would name for MVP if um, the season ended today. And I was going through the vote totals yesterday just to kind of see who, because I was curious, like not just who you know who's who is winning, but also who got like downpelt votes. In case you're curious, you should see on the site. Mike Trout, no surprise, leading the AL. Ronald Acuna Jr. leading in the NL. But I was looking at who got down votes. And I'll admit, I did not realize Omar Narvaez was having such a good year (laughs) because he got a down vote. And I was like, what's going on here? Um, And I had my eye on Narvaez a couple years ago when he was in uh, with the Mariners um, because I, as a a player profile, I've always been a big fan of left-handed hitting catchers. I think they're just good roster fits. It just makes it, you know, that when you, it's always tough to kind of figure out when you're going to use your backup catcher day game after a night. A lot of teams say, "Oh, we're going to do day game after a night game," but sometimes that's not not a great matchup for your backup catcher based on the um, starting pitcher. So when you have a righty left-handed hitting hitting catcher and a right-handed hitting catcher, it gives you a lot more options of how you can use them and get more favorable matchups. So I've always liked left-handed hitting catchers. So Narvaez has always been someone on my radar. Um, He was in the Mariners. and the White Sox before that used him kind of in that role. And he, you know, from 2016 through 2019, he had a 361 OBP um, averaging about 300 plate appearances per season. So, um, you know, that's a, a good number for a catcher, but it's, it's not like he wasn't, a, he wasn't by no means a workhorse. Um, and then in 2019 with the Mariners, he actually hit 22 home runs with a 119 OPS plus, but that home run total was a little fluky because he had 18 barrels on the year. So usually you, you, Will have more barrels than you have home runs so when you have fewer barrels than you have home runs it suggests that maybe you you lucked into some I don't know you know Yankee Stadium type um short porch home runs um before the 2020 season he was traded from the Mariners to the Brewers for Adam Hill in a uh, supplemental second round pick remember um the uh competitive balance picks are tradable they're the only draft picks that you can trade And he was terrible for the Brewers last year. Just awful. (laughs) (laughs) One of the worst players in baseball. Um, 176, 294, 269 um, with two homers. Um, He was in the bottom 2% in hard hit rate. So I think I kind of forgot about him. Um, But this year he's uh, been absolutely raking. He's hitting 371, 452, 548 with three homers in 73 play appearances. That's right. He already has more homers than he had all of last season. He's in the top ten percent expected weighted on base, so we're seeing a little bit of power to go with that good batting eye. And you know, the Brewers' pitching is getting a lot of credit for their success. They're in first place right now, and you know, as it should. Um, Corbin Burns has been incredible; still has not walked a batter. Um, Brandon Woodruff has been arguably even better than him. Um, but uh, and you know, Freddie Prado is pretty good. They've got some excellent relievers. Not to mention the fact that Christian Yelich has been, you know, hurt and has not hit a home run this year. And J- Jackie Bradley Jr., their big offseason signing, or one of their big offseason signings, hasn't hit at all. You're wondering how they're, they're scoring enough runs to complement the pitching. Well, Norvias has basically been their best hitter and a huge reason why um, they are in first place and a reason why he got a uh,
2: down-ballot vote in our uh, MVP watch. I did pick the Brewers to win the division this year mostly because I was down on the Cardinals and I liked Milwaukee's pitching. I can promise you I did not do that with the expectation that Colton Wong and Omar Narvaez would be their two best hitters, <laughs> um, which is happening now. There is one other really interesting thing about Omar Narvaez, and that's when he came up with the White Sox. He you know, looks like he had some life in his bat maybe, but he was a really, really poor defensive uh, receiver, right? Like he got killed in the framing metrics. So in 2018, he was minus 13, and in 2019, he was minus 7. And over the last two years, he has transition himself into being like a pretty solid framer. It's it's not something you see that often um, where catchers learn to improve that much. And I I think that's part of his appeal that people may not notice. All right, we are going to go and finish off with our purpose pitch where you each get something to rant and rave about. So for me, this started with an online conversation about whether Madison Bumgarner's seven inning no hitter should count as a no hitter. And I have to be honest, I don't care about this as much as everybody else seems to like. This was the Twitter topic of the last like five days. And I don't know. I just I, I'm, I see both sides. I just honestly, I don't care that much. It's not a big deal to me anyway. Um, what caught my eye was when our uh, our friend and former colleague, Bert Ciroli, uh tweeted a message she got from a baseball person saying, well, if Bumgarner's no hitter, uh, what didn't count? Because it wasn't a full game. Then why are we counting the Dodgers World Series win from last year? And this is nothing against Brit, because like, she was just passing along a message from a, a baseball person. I want to know who this baseball person is because like, what are we doing here? I know that a 60-game season is not a 162-game season, but I also know the Dodgers were the seven-time defending division champions. They would win that division if it was 60 games or 162 games or 1,062 games. And then the postseason last year was harder because it was expanded. They had to get through a three-game first-round series with really no advantage for having gotten uh, the first seed, right? Like, they still had to do a best of three. There's no buy and, like, was home field advantage even really a thing without any fans? So I don't buy that even for a second. I I don't buy that winning the World Series in a 60-game season means less. I actually think it means more. Now, you could have made this case to me if, let's say, the Marlins made a run and won the title, right? Okay, I, I I get you there. The Dodgers were, by any measure you can think of, the best team going into the season, during the season, after the season. I, I don't buy this even for a second, and I also still don't care if Madison Bumgarner gets the. <laughs>
1: um, I think by, I mean like I I agree with you because it's the Dodgers, but I think you sort of I I mean I also if if the Marlins or the Astros and the Astros came very close to getting to the world series, even though they had a losing record, you know, ended up sneaking through a world series win, I think it would have felt, um, felt taped. A similar thing happened in the NBA, right? Where like the heat managed to get to the finals. And I think like if they had won, even though the heat were kind of were playing really well and um, felt great at the time, I think in retrospect, it would have felt like a tainted title, but because the Lakers won, it was like, Oh yeah, the Lakers are the best team. Like, People kind of accepted the fact this is a this is a a a legitimate champion. I think in a certain way baseball kind of lucked out because I think if the Astros had won, it would have it would have been yeah (laughs) it would not have been would not have been um uh would not have been great. But I think you know the the um the uh the Dodgers winning kind of like legitimized it and should put that that notion to rest. I'm going to give you a bonus rant. I'll give you my take on Madison Bumgarner, which is you know I don't think I mean. Call it what you want. You can celebrate if the players want to celebrate a no hitter, like that's fine. I'm not going to take that away from him. But in, like in the annals of no hitters, it's it's just less impressive, right? It's like the same reason that we have, you know, minimums for qualifying for the batting title because you know Craig Wilson hit like 430 in 100 at bats in 1998. We don't say Craig Wilson hit 400. Like you have to you have to do it over an extended period to prove. You know, uh, Nolan Ryan took like 23 no hitters into the eighth inning, <laughs> so. But if the if if the Diamondbacks want to celebrate like a no hitter and have fun, like life is short, man, enjoy (laughs) it. Like that's what matters. All right, fair. And and then my my actual rant um, is uh, in praise um, in praise. I say this somewhat sheepishly, but um, in praise of uh, Trevor Bauer's comment after uh, Fernando Tatis homered off him and uh, and uh, taunted taunted Bauer. Right, so. If you missed it, I think it was he did he, he homerun off him twice, and the first time he did like um, the the uh, pretend like I hit it did it with one eye because you know Trevor Bauer closed his eyes during spring training, like hey I can do I can pitch with my eyes closed, and so Tatis was taunting him like hey I can hit home runs off you with my eyes closed, and then the second time he did like Bauer's like weird like I don't know strut that he does sometimes it's after
2: the, it's the Conor McGregor thing that's what it is.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, And after the game, Bauer was asked, what do you think of Tatis taunting you like that? And his quote was, I like it. I think the pitchers who have done that, who have that done to them and react by throwing at people or getting upset and hitting people or whatever, I think it's pretty soft. If you give up a homer, the guy should celebrate it. It's hard to hit in the big leagues. So I'm all for it. And I think it's important that the game moves in that direction and we stop throwing at people because they celebrated having some success on the field. That's right. And I think it's a good reminder that people have layers. Um, Trevor Bauer... There's a lot of stuff he does and has done in the past that I um, find um, objectionable. But when it comes to how baseball is played and how to you know, play the game and promote the game in a way that draws more fans in, I think he's generally been a good voice and has a good perspective. And so I like when he says stuff like this because I want more people to hear it. doesn't mean I want all of his views necessarily to be amplified because <laughs> I think some of them are less... Um, less uh, uh,
3: Positive, palatable, I should say, yeah.
1: palatable. But in this in this regard, I think that you know he's right a lot of the time with when he, when he talks about how games should be played. You know, embracing the fun, embracing the celebrations, all that stuff. Now, of course, like the next day, he stuck his foot in his mouth by like you know going off on Tatis or maybe stealing signs, and it's like he sort of lost some of that goodwill. <laughs> yes. But um, it's a good reminder that people have dimensions, and they can have. They, sometimes they can do good things even if they do bad things, and. Um, in this case, I think he was spot on. Did you see
2: did you see what his agent said or tweeted? No. I thought this was pretty funny. So she quote tweeted a video of Tatis hitting the home run and doing the eye thing and the strut and all that. And she said, and I quote, Well, some nights you're the troll and other nights you get trolled. And I liked that because it, you know, showed some level of self awareness that he does act like a troll a lot of the times. But, you know, hey, this is the game, right? If you're gonna if you're gonna do those things and these things happen to you, like there's no doubt that this this made the um the high intensity Dodgers Padres series even more interesting, which I appreciated, And I'm um, just kind of disappointed we don't get another one of those until June. That will do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.